you guys, I mentioned I was going to be running a 5K with my dad, and some of you have noted that I did survive, um, so that's a good thing. Um, barely survived, but I did. Um, but it is good to be back. We are uh, finishing up our series, Seven Letters, looking at these seven letters in the book of Revelation, chapter two and three, that Jesus writes to these seven churches in Asia Minor, or what's modern-day Turkey, um, if you're interested in kind of what area um, these are all kind of taking place in. But what, what these letters are is really this look at um, that Jesus is writing to these churches, and they're, they're, they're written not only to them, but to a broader audience as well. Um, each one of them ends with, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that, that they're written to this broad audience that we ourselves can take and look at these words written to us um, as well. And so what we've been doing through all of them um, is looking at what is Jesus kind of up to. And at the beginning of kind of each sermon, I've tried to unpack a bit about what's going on in the book of Revelation um, because it is quite confusing, right? This is the book that most of us come away with um, significantly more questions than answers um, as we look at all of this kind of imagery and this different way of writing. Um, but what I've challenged us in is that Revelation is really as much about the past the present as it is about the future. Okay, we tend to look at Revelation and think it's all this kind of, we use the word apocalyptic literature, which is the genre it's written. And so we tend to think future, Armageddon, the end of days, and all those scary things and poor budgeted movies um, and all those sorts of stuff. Uh, but the reality is, is, is I would argue that it's far more about the past and the present than it is about the future. There are pieces about um, the future. But when we do that, we tend to go in all sorts of different kind of weird ways. Um, but I used a phrase a couple um, weeks, weeks ago when I was with you. Um, that this theologian says that the, the purpose of Revelation is to purge and refurbish the Christian imagination. That all of us have an image of what it is to follow Jesus, an image of what the church should be. And what Revelation is doing is writing to these churches and it's purging maybe the ways they thought they knew how to follow Jesus that were wrong. And it's refurbishing them with a new picture of following Jesus. Um, the letter's written in A.D. 90, and just shortly after, we know that a great persecution is going to come against the church. And so we know that, that really one of the main purposes is, is as these churches were wrestling with what it meant to be a follower of Jesus under the oppression of the Roman Empire, is that it was written to inspire perseverance and faithfulness. And so we've looked each week asking questions of ourselves, saying, as followers of Jesus, what does it mean to be distinct from the Rome of our day, from the superpower of our day? And we ask questions about what does it mean? Are there ways that our heart has been caught up maybe in nationalism or caught up in wealth and caught up in, in the, the thinking of, of maybe the day and age where really we need to be the distinct followers of Jesus, an alternative community? Um, through the Sermon on the Mount series, I, I led us through too. That was all of what Jesus was doing is saying, as followers of Jesus, we just live differently at times in congruence with culture and at times in incongruence with culture. That we will live in this kind of faithfully distinct kind of area, kind of in the middle somewhere. And, and this is what Jesus is over and over doing in Revelation is he is saying, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a different day and age. And that will look different. And we ask penetrating questions of ourselves and say, are we in any way caught up in things outside of the way Jesus would have us live? 
Um, well, where we come to today in, in, the, in the last of these letters, in the church of Laodicea, um, probably the most well-known of the seven letters, um, mostly when I say the word lukewarm, we've all kind of heard that referenced. Um, growing up as a little guy in youth group, um, this passage really, if I'm honest, was used to guilt me a lot uh, about not being as passionate about following Jesus, um, which I want to hopefully bring maybe a new, a kind of a fresher perspective to it. Uh, but we, we were familiar with this letter, and I think it's, it's, it is the only of the seven letters that Jesus does not commend the church for anything. Okay, traditionally in all the letters, it would, be, it would say something along the lines of, I commend you in this, but I have this against you. Okay, or there's the church in Smyrna um, that didn't receive any um, critique. It was just, you're doing this well, hold fast, be faithful, hold strong. Um, but Laodicea is the only one where he does not commend the church for anything. Right? It, it is, I mean, really, as we'll unpack it, it is kind of this scathing critique of the church. Um, and so it gets a bit difficult. Uh, okay, I think by, by verse 20, we might see a bit of maybe where we can put a smile back on our face, um, a little more hope towards the end of things. Um, but the reality is, is Jesus is bringing a harsh message to the church in Laodicea, and of the seven churches, um, spoiler alert, we connect, I think, most with Laodicea. Uh, and we'll see a bit of that. So I think we need to kind of, I wanted to preface that to just kind of maybe prepare us a bit um, to read with maybe a new kind of sensitivity to that. But um, let's, uh, let's pray before we jump into the letter um, for that. So, <coughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we, God, we do, Lord, as we've sang, as we've talked, as we've shaken hands, as we have interacted with one another, um, Lord, we have begun to kind of open ourselves up to you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we um, dig into the scriptures, Lord, that you would also uh, continue to highlight in us, um, God, give us eyes to see the ways that you want to shape us and form us maybe into something different. God, give us eyes to see the ways that we maybe have wandered, God, the ways that we have allowed other things to take the place, um, God, of you, of, of you as the, the, the strong center of our lives. And so, Lord, um, give us a sensitivity to that. God, give us boldness and courage to ask deep, penetrating questions of ourselves, um, God, the, the difficult ones. Um, walk with us as we enter into kind of maybe some unknown or, or difficult spaces, God. So, Lord, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for, for being with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, um, and we'll be in 14 through 22, and we'll be there the, um, pretty much the entire time we are. So he begins this letter in verse 14, and we have this up on the screen. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Right? Each of these letters, Jesus begins with this short introduction describing himself in some sort of kind of unique way. And it's no different here. He says, to the angel of the church in the Odyssey, and again, the angel would have been the pastor, the leader of that church is what that's referencing. He says, to the church in the Odyssey, right, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Right, this word amen we're familiar with. We've said this morning, it is, it is this kind of affirmation, this, this, this image of kind of stability, of firmness. That when Jesus kind of evokes this language to describe himself, he says, these are the words of the one who is firm. 
the one who is stable, the one who is kind of strong. When he, when he couples it with the faithful and the true witness, it's this idea that, that when we look at Jesus, he is the witness of God. He is God. And so we see God in Jesus. And he says, these are the words of the amen, that when you look at Jesus, you can be firm and sure and stable that you are looking and hearing the words of God. Then he ends with this phrase, as the beginning of God's creation. This isn't a reference to chronology, um, okay? To have God create, or Jesus created, um, is problematic in the way we understand the Trinity, that God was, or Jesus was always there. Um, it's rather not that Jesus was the, the first thing created, but, but in him is the beginning of life. Like, in him is the beginning of creation. Think of Colossians um, chapter 1, when, when uh, the author writes this, for by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created. And later he says, everything on earth and under earth is sustained by Jesus. Jesus is giving this image saying, listen, what's about to come, what I'm about to say, I am the very one that's sustaining life. You can trust in these words because I am the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of God's creation where everything holds together. Jesus is the one pumping blood through your veins right now. I mean, he is the cause of that. He is the one who is sustaining life on earth. He says, these are the words of the one. So he goes on then. He addresses the church. He says in verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Okay, now what we tend to do, and this is what I was referencing earlier, this is the text that at the, like the last night of summer camp was usually preached, or maybe a couple weeks later after you return, it was preached to say, hey, you've grown lukewarm. And, and I think the problem with this is, is we kind of appropriate this understanding to our modern lens, right? We, we import our ideas of hot and cold. Okay, maybe the best way to say this is, is, is our understanding of hot or cold would be that hopefully in a few months we'll hear things like Steph Curry is on fire, Right? That is a good thing. Unfortunately, right now, we're hearing that the Giants have gone ice cold, right? As they stumble to their worst second half probably ever, right? Is we take that understanding to look at Jesus when he says, I wish that you were either hot or cold to me, and I wish you were either good, and if you aren't, I'd rather you be vehemently opposed to me. Okay, now that's problematic for me. <laughs> to have Jesus say, I would rather you be absolutely against me or for me. Now, some people, and again, I, I don't claim to have all of the answers. I just want to present in my thinking where I think this is problematic. Some people take that to mean, well, if you're vehemently opposed, that just means your passion is, needs to be redirected towards God, which I think is a, could very well be a valid understanding of the text. I want to present something different, but I think that is a valid reading. Um, but the problem is, again, is I think that lukewarm then would be the better thing because I am on the way towards hot. And so if we look at this text to think Jesus is saying, I wish you were either on fire for Jesus, right, or I wish you were cold, the problem is, is it reduces our relationship to God to the emotive realm. Because then it's about what we feel about God, which emotions are important. They play a big role in our spirituality, but they do not play the role in our spirituality. Because the reality is, is that there are times I wake, I wake up and I do not feel like loving God. There are circumstances in life where I find myself where I do not feel like loving God. There are times in my marriage where I do not feel like loving my wife. 
where circumstances are difficult and hard, but in those times when I don't feel it, it doesn't mean I don't love her. Okay, what it means is I, I am making the choice at that moment to love my wife even when things seem overwhelming and difficult. Because we know feelings come and go. Feelings come and go. To live your life based on feelings is a devastating place to be. Right? I mean, I remember when I was a youth pastor, this, the, the common theme for students was always just follow your heart. I don't know about that. <laughs> right? Because the reality is, is our heart betrays us. And if we look at this image, this metaphor that Jesus is saying is, I wish that you were either hot or cold to mean kind of an emotional relationship with Jesus, I have trouble with that. I just don't think it's, I think it's a misunderstood kind of metaphor because I don't want my relationship to, with God to be based in emotions. And so the question, of course, should be, is, is what is Jesus getting at here? Like, what is he really saying then? If it's not our kind of modern understanding of hot and cold, what is he getting at? Well, I think just like all the other letters that we've looked at, when we begin to look at kind of the history and maybe a bit of the kind of, um, in this specifically, the geology and the geography of um, Laodicea, I think we get a little bit of help. Okay, so in Laodicea, they had two um, sources of water. Okay, there were the first one was about four to five miles north of Laodicea was a city called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known, historically, it was known for its hot springs. Okay, it had a natural source of hot springs that had, you know, just like we understand hot springs today, they were therapeutic. They um, had all sorts of benefits to it. I mean, in a world where you can't flip the sink on, turn it to the left, and have hot water come out, a natural source of hot water was an unbelievable, valuable commodity. And so what Laodicea did, because they didn't have a strong source of water, is they would actually bring this water, um, because Hierapolis was not only to the north but also elevated, they would bring that water into the city. And the way they did this is they would take these giant limestone bricks or blocks, and they would, they would kind of hewn a, a pipeline through the middle of them, line them up one by one, and they would pipe this water four to five miles south into Laodicea. Now, after bubbling hot springs, after that flowed four to five miles, that water would arrive in Laodicea a bit lukewarm. And what would happen by the time it got to Laodicea is because those were made of limestones, all that minerals and deposits would end up in the water. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it was essentially useless. It was undrinkable. It was tepid. Right, is, is it was just, un, like you couldn't drink it. There was one purpose that we know of for that water before. They would repurify it, and then they would use it uh, for their common uses. But there was one use that but when the water came into Laodicea that they would have. And it was essentially, um, Laodicea had a strong medical influence. And so they would use that water to induce vomiting. No joke. So when Jesus says, when I drink the lukewarm water, I will spit you out of my mouth, which really, that's a gentle way to say it. The word is vomit. The word is, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Jesus is drawing on that imagery. Well, the second picture or the second source of water we have is from Colossae, 11 miles kind of southeast to Laodicea. And they were known for their cold springs. That they had kind of these big mountain ranges too that would have the snow runoff kind of run down. And they would do a similar process bringing the water up to Laodicea. But the same thing as it travels 11 miles to the north, um, northwest to get to Laodicea, it would also have grown lukewarm. 
See, I think what Jesus is doing is he is not using this image of hot and cold to guilt us into not feeling something. I think he is looking at the church in Laodicea and saying, you have lost your usefulness. That when the water's hot, it has a purpose. It is therapeutic. It has all this kind of value to you. You can bring this in. It has purpose and meaning. He says in the the water that's cold from Colossae, he says that's refreshing. It brings joy. And it is, you know, on a hot day, again, where you can't just make water cold, right? Like this has a huge purpose and value. And he looks at Laodicea and he says, listen, I wish you were either hot or cold because right now you're useless. And it makes me want to vomit. He looks at this church with this scathing critique, saying, you, like your water, have grown tepid, worthless. See, what we tend to do, church, is we we tend to take our experience of God and our experience of of church, and we tend to kind of over-spiritualize it into something, kind of an individual thing, and and we want to make it this in these walls and on this hour on Sunday morning. But the reality is is that the thing church is, that that Jesus, through through that Sermon on the Mount that I, I preached, is that the main message of Jesus was about the kingdom of God, that it is about the church being a useful force for good in the world. And Jesus looks at this church and says, listen, you have lost your way. You have grown lukewarm, and it's disgusting to me. He says, you've lost your purpose. You are not a force for good and justice and peace and joy and therapeutic qualities that the hot springs get, or you're not refreshing with the cold water that you have to the world. He says, you're just kind of this lukewarm nothingness. He says, you've grown lukewarm, and it's disgusting See, this changes our perspective of things. Okay, it doesn't mean that we all have to do these grand things. Some of us hopefully will, and others, I think, they are very grand in themselves. It means that we, we become kindergarten teachers with the perspective of the kingdom of God. We become bankers and lawyers and plumbers and, and whatever it is. And in your Mondays and Tuesdays, you understand the kingdom of God to be the framework of your life, the thing that propels your life forward. And you then go in your Mondays and Tuesdays bringing peace, joy, hope, patience, all of that. That the kingdom of God, that is, that is the way, other way Jesus says is that we are the salt and the light. It is Jesus saying that when we come and we are followers of Jesus in a different place, in a different world, you have a new perspective, a new meaning, a new purpose, a new purpose for things. And again, church, he looks at this church and he says, listen, you've lost that. You've lost it. You don't have that distinction. You don't have that way where you see the world with new eyes. You live in a way that brings, that joins God in the reconciliation of all things, as Colossians says. That our role is we are doing the things of God in the world, on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus teaches us to pray. That the kingdom of God is about heaven invading earth, that we are bringing that reality to all the places we go here and now in the little ways, in the big ways. In everything we do, we have a new vision, a new perspective. And he says, listen, if you don't, if you aren't working towards that, taking that small step, he says, you've grown lukewarm. You're useless. You're useless. Well, I hope the question that comes up then is, how did Laodicea get here, right? Like, how did they become this kind of lukewarm um, church? So look at verse 17, the very next lines. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing. 
Okay, now a bit about Laodicea. Laodicea of the seven churches, and this is why I think we connect a lot with it, is it is the wealthiest of the seven churches. Um, it is absolutely, they had um, a, a lot of factors to their economy, but some of the, um, the most prevalent was um, they had developed, I mentioned that kind of medical influence, they had developed this kind of eye solve that Jesus will reference in a bit. And it was this, this kind of powder or this substance that would heal kind of eye ailments and whatnot. So it was highly sought after. Um, another big factor of their economy was they had this rare black wool um, that they would sell. And so they were heavy into the textiles. Um, they were at the crossroads of two trade routes um, between Rome and kind of the Orient and Asia and that sort of um, kind of whatnot. And so there was, there was this heavy economic kind of influence. They were a very wealthy church okay, and a city. Um, I've mentioned in a couple of the other sermons about an earthquake that hit in AD 60 that devastated a lot of these churches. Um, well, it devastated Laodicea as well. And when Rome went to them to say, hey, here's some money to help you rebuild, they looked at Rome and said, we're good. We can rebuild on our own. Um, they were known for their banks. It was kind of the first banking system. And so they had these kind of storehouses of wealth. And when their city is flattened, they look at Rome, who's trying to offer support, and they say, listen, we can rebuild on our own. And they rebuild bigger and better on their own dime. Jesus here is almost quoting them in the way they looked at Rome. And he is saying, listen, you say you are rich, that you've prospered, and you need nothing. Church, it's about to get a bit personal. Because <laughs> Jesus draws a direct line between lukewarmness and our wealth. He draws a direct, I mean, it is the next words as he says, for you say I am rich, I've prospered. I need nothing. See, those things in themselves are neutral, okay? There's nothing inherently evil about money and success and all of that. But what Jesus over and over in the New Testament talks about is how those things become an obstacle to our spirituality. That that is just kind of one of the things that we have to recognize. That it gets in the way of finding that narrow path that Jesus talks about. That our wealth, our success, our comfort, our complacency, all of those are interwoven because when we have money, when we achieve things, when we accomplish things, the, the reality is it doles us to our need for God. When I can walk to my kitchen and get food whenever I want and I can walk to my sink and get cold or hot water whenever I want, it, my, my need for God isn't necessarily felt in an immediate way. And for Laodicea, their wealth had begun to hinder their spirituality. They had begun to lean into those things. They had begun to lean into their kind of wealth and status as what was their identity, their worth, their value. And church, as we are in North America, the wealthiest like 2% in the world, like, like this is us. If we are not careful, our wealth hinders our spirituality. And maybe a better way to look at it is, is if you don't believe me, it's maybe the way we look at the poor. Okay, when we look at the poor in our society, we tend to think, man, they must have made some sort of mistake. They've screwed up. They didn't pull themselves up from their bootstraps. They're just lazy, whatever it is. They've made their own bed. What that slowly does is means that those that have achieved some sort of success have then, they were their own savior. They worked hard. They did whatever it was they needed to do to get to that place. Or like, that's the implication of it. And Jesus draws this connection saying, most likely when we become useless, it's because we're leaning back into our comfort, our complacency, and we're kind of resting in our successes, and it's doling our need for God. 
Now, I imagine the church in Laodicea, I imagine all of us here who have been Christians for some time, if asked about this, we would never just say, you know, we would always answer properly. We would say, yes, I'm a sinner saved by grace. But I think when our wealth is in, in kind of involved in this, what happens is existentially we have a hard time embracing that reality. Like the, the, the message that God loves us as we are, like that is harder for us to understand. It takes more filtering to get through kind of our heads because we are able to make it on our own. Again, those are neutral. But what I want you to see is how they hinder our thinking and our, our experience of God because, again, the reality of God loving us as we are, that is a different picture for someone who's wealthy than someone who may not have a whole lot the majority of the world, right? It's easier for them to grasp that picture of God loves us because we're caught up kind of pursuing all these other sorts of things, which again are neutral. We'll get into that more in a second. Okay, but they hinder us. They block kind of our thinking in that. And again, Jesus draws this direct line. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King, he, he wrote um, this letter, which if you haven't read, letter to, um, from Birmingham Jail. If you haven't read it, take the 30 minutes, um, just Google it. Uh, it. It is a must read. It's one I read probably at least two, two to three times a year. Uh, so, such an, I mean, such an important voice even for our day um, today with the racial tensions and, um, and whatnot that we're experiencing. But he wrote this on kind of the state of the church in his day. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Things are different now. So often, the contemporary church is a weak and effectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often, it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structures of the average community is consoled by the church's silence and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Man, he says, unless or you have become an arch defender of the status quo. So I think what wealth does is we get comfortable with the status quo because the status quo has been good to us. But for the kingdom of God, we are looking for the voiceless. We are looking for those on the margins of society. We are working not for the status quo, but to continue to push the kingdom of God forward so we don't become an irrelevant social club. Jesus looks at the church and he says, you're not hot or cold. You've become an irrelevant social club. You've become useless. You've become a thermometer, not a thermostat that transforms the mores of society that finds its vision in every, every, all of its goings, bringing the kingdom of God to everywhere it goes. And listen to the way Jesus continues in verse 17. And he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus chooses his words here very carefully. Okay, if you look at chapter 2, verse 9, it is almost the antithesis of, the, of what he writes to the church in Smyrna. In Smyrna, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
He says, I know you're insignificant. Smyrna was this small church, not a lot of influence, not a lot of wealth. He says, I know you're poor. He says, but you don't realize because you have me, you are rich. And he looks at Laodicea and he says the complete opposite. He says, you say you're rich, that you've prospered, that you have all this. But he says, in reality, you're poor, blind, and naked. Now, poor, blind, and naked, right? I've talked about Laodicea's wealth. Right? I've talked a bit about that medical influence, that they had that powder to, to um, heal the eyes. Right? And then I talked about that black wool that they would import and export, that, it was, um, that was one of the things they were known for. Jesus looks directly at this church and says, here are the three things you hold up as your identity, as your worth, and your value. He says, you think you're rich? You think you can heal the eyes, let people see? You think you export these great clothes? He says, when you look at those things, in reality, you're poor, blind, and naked. The very things they found their identity in, he says, they're fooling you. I heard a pastor use the illustration of, of we go out and we pan for gold in the world and we go in all these different ways, but we, as we pan everywhere we go, we keep coming up with fool's gold. It looks like gold, it feels like gold, it appears like gold, it has some value to it, right? Fool's gold has value, he says, but the reality is, is it's tricking you. It's not actually what you are searching for. And he looks at this church and says, the things that you are finding your worth, your gold, your ability and your value, all of that, he says, when you find those, they continue to leave you empty. And, and we do this, right? We do this in so many ways. I mean, we are searching and searching to kind of self-medicate the ails of our soul, that we feel this longing for acceptance, for, for love, to be kind of truly known and fully loved. Like, like that is something all of us are longing for, and we seek for it in all of these other ways. And Jesus is saying, listen, they will leave you empty. We say, if I just got that promotion, if my business just took off, if I just got married, or if I just married someone else, or if my kids could have this kind of life, if I was just looking this way, whatever it is, we look for gold in these places. And Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to come up empty because none of those can carry the weight of being God. I love my wife. Like she is one of the greatest women I've ever met, but she will make a terrible God. If I transform her into God, I will crush her. If she is my ultimate purpose, my ultimate meaning, it will crush her. She cannot carry that weight. If I make my beautiful two girls everything about my, my life, if they are the sole purpose I exist, it will crush those two and it will crush me. Because our relationships aren't meant, are based in feeling. Our actions with God, our, our, our existence with God is not based on feeling. Right? And so whatever that thing is, success, wealth, sex, alcohol, whatever, whatever we throw our lives into, if that is it, and we make everything about it, I promise you it will crumble because it wasn't made to carry the center of our affections. There will always be someone greater, richer, stronger, more beautiful, whatever it is. And again, those things are not inherently bad. I'm not saying go throw those things away, but put them in proper perspective. When my wife is not my God, that liberates her to live fully to herself. The bad, the good, the ugly. When she is not my God, I don't have to then please her, and so I am free to be myself. And when she accepts me for the flaws that I have and all those things, that transforms our relationship. Because it allows me to be free to be who I am. And the same is true in every other area that we think of. Job, kids, whatever. 
is those things are fool's gold. They're tricking us. And we're searching and we're searching. And Jesus says, listen, they're making you poor, blind, and naked. Well, he goes on in verse 18. And kind of getting past that self-medication that we do so often, he gets into what I call refined medication. And he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and shame and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Right? Jesus says, listen, instead of turning to those things, he says, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined by the fire. He says, my, the, what I offer, my identity, if you root yourself in him, yes, life will be difficult. Yes, hardships will come, but you won't get crushed fully. It may feel like it, but Jesus, the words of the amen, the beginning of creation who holds and sustains everything together, he says, when you buy from me gold refined in the fire, you will find that I am stable and firm. I am, I am the one you can stake your life on. And he says, do that, and he counters all three of those, poor, blind, and naked. He says, again, buy from me the gold. Buy from me white garments. Come to me for the salve to anoint your eyes. Stop resting in your own success, your own wealth, your own accomplishments, and instead turn to the things that I offer. And he says, those who I love, I reprove and discipline. And I remember when I was coaching basketball, one of the things we'd tell my guys um, at the beginning of the year is when we're coming down hard on you, when we're kind of railing you hard, working you hard, all that, we tell them, don't be discouraged. We said, be discouraged and worried when we stopped talking to you. Because if we stopped talking to you, that just meant you're going to sit at the end of the bench the entire game and I'm not going to put any work to you. All right, and that's the reality here. And we know this with our kids. We know this with all sorts of things, right? It's those we love. He says, those, the ones that I care about, the ones I want to see refined and healed. He says, those are the ones I reprove and I discipline. Those are the ones that I work with, that it gets hard, and I, sometimes that means some difficult kind of experiences and difficult experiences with God. He says, those who I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. I remember that word repent, we reduce often to this like experience in some dark room where we're crying and weeping and calling out to God, which certainly can be part of it. But the essence of repent is think about the world differently. Turn around, go the other direction. Jesus says, when you find that fool's gold, when it lets you down, when you find that it has disappointed you, as I said, he says, just think about the world different. Go a different direction. Seek something else. Seek something greater, something that's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as God is often described. All right? as, as Hebrews says, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, when things like that crumble and fall apart, don't just become useless. Instead, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Come be zealous, repent. And then in verse 20, we get maybe a bit of a reprieve. But he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, we, we have tended to take this verse uh, and use it kind of in an evangelistic setting, which um, certainly I understand what they're doing there. I just don't think that's the original intent. Um, he's writing to Christians, and so um, to use this to write to non-Christians, it works, but I, I don't know if it's necessarily the original intent. Um, but instead he's saying, listen, I'm standing at the door and knocking. 
He says, when you find that fool's goal, when you are let down, when you are repenting and walking the other way, he says, I'm going to be there waiting, knocking at the door. It is an invitation to intimacy. Where he's saying, you can come in and I will, or rather, yeah, I, I will come in. I will enter in. I will sit down and eat with you. And that image of sharing a meal with one another, we lose a bit in our culture. In a first century world, it was kind of a big deal. It was like full embrace of kind of honor and acceptance. Um, it's that time where you have had the good steak with not the boxed wine, but the, the stuff that comes in those bottles, the good stuff. right? It's that experience when you have the good meal. And you like don't want it to end because the experience is rich and you're sharing in laughter and it is just, you just want to sit in that moment forever. I mean, we've all had experiences like that around the table where it is just like, yeah, I don't want it to end. Jesus is saying, listen, I want that with you. He's saying, I want to come in. I want to eat with you. I want to share a meal. I want to have intimacy with you. I want to, I want to break out the good stuff and break bread and enjoy one another. It's, it's when we come to our time with God and it's not this to-do list to get through, but rather it's where we sit and say, God, I just want to enjoy you. And the whole time, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm knocking, I'm here. Just open the door, let me in. Don't seek it in those things, find it in me. And he's saying, I'm here, I'm waiting. And maybe in the kind of a big stroke of irony as we have pursued things that we want that kind of longing to end, like we are pursuing it, but the entire time it has been pursuing us. And God is waiting there knocking, trying to say, let me in, let me enjoy your presence. Let's have this meal. That the presence of God the entire time has been pursuing us as we have been running around searching and searching for meaning and worth. And Jesus says, I'm here. I'm here. This is the image of communion, right? I mean, this is the table. This is the, the meal that Jesus invites us to, that we take up this old ritual, right? Every week we do this, but every week it's this reminder that Jesus is pursuing us, that he wants to have this intimacy with us. That we take the bread and we take, this is probably the bad stuff. This is the Welch's juice, I'm sure. Not the good stuff, right? But we take the juice, and we take it in, experiencing the love of God that has been pursuing us. And for some of us this morning, this needs to be a place where we just kind of be with God and say, you know what, God? I'm a mess. I've been pursuing that. I've been seeking after that. And really, some of us are going to say, it feels good. Because, right? again, those things aren't inherently wrong. They will, deceive, they, they will look good, and that's okay. But, but we need to pray, God, help me make sure they're in their proper perspective. For some of us, we need to say, Lord, where are the blind spots in my life? Or like for me, one of the things um, that, that, that is my blind spot is I stand on a lot of stages and get to preach and tell people um, things about God and things I'm learning and all that. The problem is, is I come very, like I succumb to people pleasing very easily. Like the words that you guys say that are so gracious, like I, I tend to thrive on that. And if I let that become the center, that becomes very problematic very quick. And so one of the things I constantly have to do is I come to communion and I say, God, let me make sure that this is about you. Like, let me be real here and, and know that, this, that all of this that we do is about you, not about me hearing kind words from people. Because right? that's one of the blind spots I have. And I constantly, like, it amazes me how that just wells up sometimes. I didn't even see it coming. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'll get like 100 people that say nice things to that one person and I'm like destroyed. And it's because I've put my entire value and worth in, in that not in Jesus. And so communion for some of us, we just need to pray, God, reveal the blind spots in me. 
Where are the areas that I have compromised, where I, have, I need some that my, my thinking to be purged and refurbished? For some of us, again, we just need to come to this with that reminder that Jesus is knocking at the door, that he's here. So you pray with me as we prepare.